look over Second Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing Timothy, he says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, your hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, thank you for the fact, as we've been singing, that you are sovereign, you're on the throne, you're alive. We are not left stranded here today without direction, without provision, without hope. Uh, even those that are in dire straits with disease or sickness, that you are still on the throne and that you're able and willing to help. And we just commit ourselves to you this morning as we're looking particularly at the subject of preaching, which would be, I guess, my job description to a large degree. I pray that you will speak to my heart, to our hearts. I pray that your will would be done in our lives, and that you would accomplish your perfect your perfect will for us, that Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone would be exalted and magnified in this time. So I commit it to you, commit my heart to you in this time to you, and we ask your blessing upon it. To that end, we pray. In his name, we thanksgiving. Amen. Well, we've been looking at this text, and we noted there that Timothy, that Paul starts out by talking about the seriousness of the charge. When he charges him, he says, I solemnly charge you before God, before Jesus Christ, you're going to be accountable to him. So this is a serious charge that I'm charging you. And the substance of the charge is that you are to preach the word, not preach your favorite topic or your pet peeve, but to stick to the book. This is God's word. Stick to that. You let that be the curriculum that occupies your time and your studies and the focus of your ministry because God's word is inspired of God, comes from him and says God breathed truth coming to us. The scope of that charge is which we are now getting into and that is to be ready in season, out of season, to be um, I guess to be uh, anticipating whatever takes place, whether it's convenient or not convenient, uh, to be willing to and be ready to give what you understand God's word says, to give God's truth and to communicate it effectively, uh, and to be to do it even when it may not seem to be convenient at times. If the Lord opens the doors. We need to take that opportunity to be ready. And that, you know, in order to do that, you need to know what God said. You need to be in it. You need to be um, in touch with him. And uh, if it's favorable, even if it's not favorable, take advantage of that opportunity to do that. And then he gives us three things here, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Uh, the last one, exhorting, he says, to do it with great patience and instruction. And those are the things we're going to look at briefly this morning. Um, I want you to notice something as we begin those three things. Notice that they are, there is not a list of things that 
come to us to give us comfort or to um, improve our self-image. God is not doing that. These things coming to us are challenging us. They are confronting us. They are things that he lists that if you teach the word of God, it, it implies that there is always room for growth, room for improvement. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, and, I, and I guess this really sounds kind of negative. You're listening on, on the internet or whatever. It sounds kind of negative that, that we're just focusing on the negative side or the side of the need of growth and maturity. But we are sinful people. We are self-centered people. We are uh, wicked people. Every, every morning when I have my quiet time and my Bible study and my prayer time and I go before the Lord, there is never a time that I can ever remember coming to the Lord and thinking, Lord, I am so thankful to you that I have reached the place of spiritual growth and maturity and I don't need to improve. I have never had that happen to me. And I can honestly say that, that I don't know anybody. Now, I know a lot of people that are giants in the faith, but all of us, there is always room for growth, always room for improvement, always room for taking God more seriously. And so I think. What Paul is telling Timothy here is that when you preach the word, the word is going to confront people, it's going to challenge people, it's going to correct behavior, it's going to rebuke a bad behavior, and so we want to be on the cutting edge of that. We won't take that seriously. So let's look at these things this morning. The first one in my translation is the word Reprove, and it's closely connected with the next one, rebuke. But let's let's look at reprove for a minute. Um, it's a lecho, a lecho. Reese says that it speaks of a reproof which results in a person's confession of his guilt uh, and the conviction of sin, um, which is something that really confronts me. Because I'm a sinful person, and I know what it means to be confronted. And when I read the word, many times it slips on my toes. The word reprove uh, is used in one other place in the New Testament in the King James translation. It's not found in New American Standard translation. Uh, but the King James has a little bit of a different Greek text in a couple of parts of it. And in this particular case, this is the particular example here in John 8, 9 where you have the story taken of the, remember the story of Jesus uh, taking the, it brought the woman taking an adultery, found an adultery before the Lord in John chapter eight. That's a very, very interesting story where you have Jesus and uh, his disciples kind of early in the morning in the temple, in the colonnade there. And uh, the Jews have come in all of a sudden there's a crowd and a bunch of people coming over there and making a lot of racket. And they're dragging this, this woman who was found uh, taken in, in adultery. She, she's either totally nude or she doesn't have much on. She's been struggling with, they, they grabbed her and just tripped her out and they brought her to Jesus. They are aware that Jesus is compassionate and that he is a God, that he has a heart of, of, of mercy. And yet at the same time, they are wanting to use the strict standard of the law to put him on the spot, kind of the horns of the dilemma, so that either um, they're going to ask him about this woman taking an adultery, and the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? And so either he's going to decide with her and say, well, let's just forget it and let it go, or 
is either that or they're going to say no this this uh go ahead and stone her and so they are wanting they're using her as an element or an item to attack jesus and they're wanting to track trap him in that and so they drag her before him and when they do they they uh, the text says that they ask him the question what do you say the law says should be done what do you say and the text says he bends over and starts writing in the ground actually he can't write in the ground because it's a tile floor it's like a um cobblestone or whatever there's nothing to write on it's just a stone floor but it, the same terminology to mean tracing is that part of what he's doing just tracing around the stone uh, scholars try to say, try to guess what he was writing. I don't think he was writing anything. I, I know what he was doing because I do that all the time at Lowe's. I'm sitting there in the, in the minute time uh, in the line of Lowe's and women come through and they're, the way that they dress, they're trying to advertise their bodies. And uh, it's hard for me because, because I'm a normal man. Men are stimulated by uh, sight. So I try to make it a point to either turn away or to look them in the eye. And I don't always do that. I'm not saying that I, I never lust. I, that, that's not true. But I try not to. I try to look in the eyes. I think it's what Jesus was doing. He was turning away from that. And he was, he was uh, letting them come. And it's kind of setting the stage because they were accusing and accusing and accusing. The text makes it clear they were just coming up and, and, and venting up their attack uh, to Jesus and the question, what do you say? What's going on? What do you think? She's taking adultery. What the law says she should be so. What do you think? And they're building up this, it's kind of as a tension. Jesus, being the master of the of the situation, was ignoring that. He was tracing on the sand, and then finally he stops. Now, as these attacks were coming from these Jews, every eye of the crowd that was gathered around this scene was focused on the Jews as they were attacking and, and yelling and screaming at Jesus. When Jesus stops and stands up, every eye is focused on Jesus. Every ear is focused on Jesus. <clears throat> quiet. They want to hear what he has to say. What does he say? He says, let the man without sin cast the first stone. Then he stops and back down and starts tracing again. Now, every eye and every ear is now focused on the Jews. What do they do? They can't say, well, we are without sin. Everybody knows that this scene has been set, the stage has been set by them to try to trick Jesus. So finally, the text says, beginning with the oldest, the oldest, he drops the stones and walks away. And in that, that text, we read this in John 8, 9. It says, when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, and that word convicted is our word reproved. They were reproved, they were convicted by their own conscience, and they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And the point is here, is this word is used, the only place in the New Testament other than our text is it's used to speak of conviction, and uh, God's word does that, doesn't it? When we speak, and the word of God, when we teach the word of God, it has a way of cutting to the heart, and convicting us uh, of sin. One writer, I think it was Weist, uh, says the preacher is to deal with sin first in his own life, which is true, and then in the lives of his hearers, both the saints and unbelievers that may be listening, is not to play games with it. Sin is real, it needs to be dealt with. 
And uh, one writer said sin has been kind of lost in the vocabulary of our preaching today. I don't know if that's the case, but it is, it is in the Bible everywhere. I'm going to give you some examples of that. There's some places where sin is, is just, it's, it may be missing in a lot of our preaching, but it's not missing in the Bible. It's everywhere in the scriptures. Sin is, is um, lawlessness, according to 1 John 3, 4. Uh, James says sin is uh, when you know the right thing to do and do not do it to you, it is sin. It is uh, sin is that which separates between us and God. Isaiah says that um, your iniquities have brought a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Sin will do that. And uh, God is holy and we can't just play games with him. The God's word is that which comes and purifies, if you will, that relationship and opens our hearts and helps us to see what it is that is pleasing to the Lord that we can confess it and say. That's why when we have communion, which we do tonight, um, one of the first things we do is we come before the Lord in prayer and we ask the Lord, we confess to him and we ask the Lord to cleanse our hearts and if there are things in our lives that shouldn't be there, we want to confess them. It needs to be dealt with. Uh, it's a serious issue. Uh, the parable of the sore, is a parable in which you have hearts that are infected with pleasures and other things, and sin comes in and it can easily lead us astray. And so sin deceives and can do that very easily. Uh, in Joshua 1.18, it is interpreted as rebelling, being a rebel. Rebels, the anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey the word, sin is rebellion against God and his word and his truth. And it just, it really Havoc on our heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's word is clear about that. Um, it began all the way uh, back in the book, in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God gave that direction to Eve, instruction to Adam and Eve not to eat of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's a true story, and um, it just it says there in the text that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. The light of the eyes, desire to make one wise, and she took it and ate it. She disobeyed God, and she gave also to her husband. She listened to the serpent. He listened to her, and both of them got into trouble. And it's a serious thing um, because it created a barrier that has plunged the entire human race into rebellion against the Lord. And uh, we are suffering even to this day the consequences of that. And that's, but that's where it begins. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says there's not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. And we know that, don't we? We know that we're all sinners. We know that we all struggle with obedience and uh, with our own self-will. Um, we talked this morning, and I thought that was a good quote from Jerry Bridges. I wrote that down in my Father's Bible, that uh, it, is, it is easier to obey God than it is to trust him but it's not always easy to obey him either. It's not a lot of times he, we, we want to obey, but we don't because we want to do our own thing. Our deeds are evil. We love darkness rather than light because we have our own agendas and stuff like that. And uh, it's just really important. We need to take, we need to, I need to take God seriously. The human race, uh, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, he says, you who are dead in trespasses and sins, that we were spiritually dead, disconnected from God, and you were dead in trespass and sins, God made alive. 
And so that we were who are, who are estranged from God, according to Ephesians 1, um, we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the earth. These things we were called sons of disobedience, but God has made us alive, and now he has been speaking to us. We hear his word. His word convicts us of things in our lives, like sin, that need to be corrected, that need to be dealt with. And you need to do it, and I need to do it. We need to take it seriously. Our hearts are depraved. Our lives are, Jesus said that um, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. We're filled with self-centeredness. We're filled with, sometimes with rebellion and things of this nature. I am too. I'm not, I'm not standing up here looking down my nose at you. I am too. And I know what it means to struggle with wanting my will and doing my thing and telling the Lord, just wait, let me do what I want to do first and get that out of the way. And uh, that's rebellion. And God's word deals with that. It, it's, um, it's pretty serious. We're struggling right now in our country with a lot, and, and um, perhaps God is dealing with us about that. What does the Bible say? That uh, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, Proverbs 14, 34. And so this is, this is maybe something that God is dealing with in our country because God has blessed us so much, and yet with all of that blessing, it seems that we just want to, to kind of push him aside and live only for ourselves. We are, we have been greatly blessed in the recent days with prosperity and, and the things of that nature. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a good thing that maybe that God is helping us just to remind us that we are dependent on him. That's really important. The Old Testament, the Jewish system, had a system whereby people could come and offer a sacrifice, a lamb, that was intended to appease, to, 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 to shed his life in, their, in place of their sin, in place of their lives, a, a sacrificial system, if you will, that was geared so that the death of the lamb and the pouring out of the lamb's blood was a temporary covering in place of the death of the sinner that was coming to worship God. In the New Testament, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus in John 1.29 and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here we have the New Testament, and Jesus is the picture now of the fulfillment of that shadow in the Old Testament of the Lamb God has provided that will be the sacrifice that is available for all humanity that will come and trust in him. And so if you, are, you recognize your sinfulness, God has provided a sacrifice to take the place of our sin, to take the place of us. In his wrath, as he pours out his wrath uh, against sin, he poured it out on his son in my place. He bore, he, he bore God's wrath in my place. In other words, the death of Christ was intended to appease the wrath of God against me. And that's a good thing. Psalm 118.11 says this. And this is a good one. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. I was, uh, I forget who it was was telling me that they had a struggle with smoking. They were trying to quit. I used to smoke. I smoked for about 12 years, and then my wife was praying for me, and God helped him quit. I quit cold turkey. But anyway, whatever that means, it means. It doesn't matter. But um, he said that uh, he'd have a hard time quitting smoking. 
And so he took, decided one day, he took his little Gideon Bible, took a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket, threw it away, put the Bible in place of it. <laughs> and every time he wanted to reach for a pack of cigarettes, he grabbed the Bible and take it out and read it. Well, the scripture tells us that if you put God's word in your heart and learn scripture that, for example, if you struggle with anger, if you learn scripture that deals with anger, or if you struggle with lust, learn, memorize scripture that deals with the area that you struggle with, the scripture can help you deal with sin. All right? It can do that. And that's one of the important things is that, that God's word can help us deal with that in our own lives. Um, we are we're walking in this life as people who are sinners trying to become more like Christ. And one of the things that the Bible says is that if we come to Christ, we have been, we are associated with him. And there's a sense in which we are pictured as having been crucified with Christ so that we die to self, you understand what I'm saying, and alive unto God. And that's what Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. God, I have Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 8, 34 says that the person that is um, committing sin is a slave of sin, serving that. And I can, see, I can see that in my life. As we talked about living a crucified life, I can see that not only do I, is, is my life a display of someone who wants to follow the Lord, but that as I disobey him, it becomes a habit. It becomes almost ingrained. I can do that, and, and rather than responding to the Lord, I can become more and more enslaved to my sinful habits. Do you understand what I'm saying? My sinful lifestyle, it, that can be that way, and I don't want it to do that. So I, I uh, try to form habits that are good. That's one of the reasons why I make it a point not to miss Bible reading and prayer time in the morning. It's not necessarily that it's just most... I do look forward to it, but it's I, one of the reasons I do it is because it's an important habit that you put into your life. It's really, really very important, so I, I seek to do that. Let me uh, just ask you to take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 51 for just a second. You are familiar with this psalm. This is David's psalm of confession that uh, David had, had sinned with Bathsheba. He, he was laying... He was laying out of work one day. He was the king, and he was supposed to be going with his army. They were fighting battles and things of this nature. And in the midst of these warfare, in the midst of the battles, uh, he decided one Saturday morning that he was going to lay out. He stayed on top of his roof there and slept in. And he got out. He was walking on his roof, and he saw this gorgeous woman across the way over there taking a bath on her, on her roof. And he lusted after her. Now, every man in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know what that was like. And, but he, being king, could have anything he wanted. And so he said, had her brought him. And uh, he sinned with her. And she became pregnant. But about a year later, uh, Nathan the prophet comes knocking on David's door. And uh, Nathan comforted him and he confronts him about his sin. He does so by giving him a story. And you know the story. He talks about a rich man and a poor man. A rich man had lots of sheep. A poor man only had one little lamb that he loves and cherished very much. And the rich man had a visitor coming to his house. And uh, he wanted to kill a lamb, but he didn't want to kill his. So he, he took the lamb from that poor guy, the man that he loved, and killed it and served it. 
We made David mad, and David said, this man needs to pay, pay the price of his, his sin, and so on and so forth. And finally, Nathan said, David, you are the man. And he pointed out that, that, that you, you are here in the palace. You've got all this prestige and all these women and stuff. This poor guy, he has one wife. You took his wife, and you had her and took her and fought and defiled her. And then you also had her husband, Uriah, killed. And uh, so... Uh, David repented of that. Uh, he was confronted by it. He repented of that. And Psalm 51 is his confession. Just let me read it to you and uh, because uh, you see how serious sin is. David says uh, in the beginning of verse 1, as he requests forgiveness, he said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And loving kindness is an Old Testament word that's very close to the New Testament word, grace. Uh, be, be gracious to me. Oh God, according to your loving kindness or grace, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. David acknowledges that. He comes to God. He asks the Lord for the forgiveness for the cleansing, for the restoration. This is something that is very serious now because David has been confronted by Nathan the prophet and David has been struggling with this for over a year. I personally am of the opinion that David has been going to the temple on a regular basis, offering sacrifices on a regular basis and asking the Lord to forgive him on a regular basis or, or confessing that, hoping that this would do it. And yet at the same time, he keeps coming away with a guilty conscience. He keeps coming away knowing that it's not doing any good, he's still guilty. And uh, he goes on to say, verse 3, in his confession, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. That is the nature of a guilty conscience. That's the nature of sin. That when you sin like that and you haven't dealt with it before the Lord, you haven't brought it before the Savior and really confessed it, it is there and it will just fester in your heart. A lot of emotional problems come out. In fact, I, I was reading some some place where they say that one of the major emotional struggles that people have, if not the major emotional struggle, is a guilty conscience or a lack of forgiveness. Uh, and a lack of forgiveness can only come when you go before the Lord, to bring those problems before God. And so here he says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, we might we might not think adultery is such a big deal in our day and time. This kind of thing goes on in, in popularity. But here he's saying, in God's sight, it is sin and it's serious. And said, so I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So David is saying that this is this is something that's been eating away with me, burning my conscience. I'm having a hard time sleeping. I'm having a hard time uh, dealing with this. Um, and yet you are justified when you speak. You, you, I can't blame you. It's me. I can't, uh, you know, I could try to pass the book and blame shit and say, well, she shouldn't have been out there doing that or whatever. I could use a lot of, you know, she made me do it or he did made me do that or that guy pulled it. We could do all kinds of things like that. But no, I said, I acknowledge that I'm wrong. I can't blame somebody else. I was brought forth in iniquity. That's a, and in sin, my mother conceived me. That means that the point of conception, which is an interesting 
uh, thing to recognize in the day in which we're trying to talk about abortion that's a woman's right to, to uh, have charge over her own body. That that instead, when the egg and the sperm, when the when the sperm fertilizes the egg in the woman's womb, that is no longer her body. That's a separate individual, a sinner, according to what David said. Uh, a person with a separate DNA, a separate blood system, and uh, person that God has created. And so it's not just a, a part of glob of tissue. No matter what the Supreme Court says, it's not just a glob of tissue. It is a person God has created. And so he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In other words, you don't want to you don't want to work out a way in which you are convincing yourself that you're okay. I want to be honest and forthright with you in my heart. And in the hidden part, make me know wisdom inside my heart. Help me to understand this. Purify me with hyssop, he said. This is, the, this is what you would be doing at the temple. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You purify me, you wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Because the result of living in sin and the result of being... Um, Self-centered in this kind of lifestyle makes you bitter and hard-hearted and mean, mean-spirited. Give me joy, gladness, that the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Isn't it wonderful that God can do that? That he can, he can cleanse us and he can hide his face from our sins and blot out our iniquities. He says to create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. A steadfast spirit means that you don't want to quit. You don't want to bail out. I'm sure that David many times has gotten to the place where he was, he was kind of getting tired of this and he wanted to back off and would like to go, go on vacation, close down the shop, walk away. Many times he wanted to do that. I'm sure with this pressure on him, he says, no, renew Renew a steadfast spirit within me and don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I think in that particular reference, the Holy Spirit is talking about the anointing of his kingship, his leadership. Don't take your hand off of me. In that sense, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore, which means the joy was taken away. It means the joy was gone. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me which means that it was easy for him to give up, sustain me with a willing spirit. So what I'm saying is that the result of sin in his life has led to a not only broken spirit and everything, but the lack of joy, uh, a, a lack of wanting to continue on. It's, been, it's having a real emotional effect on David. Then he says, when you do that, I'll teach transgressions your ways and sinners will be converted to you. In other words, the result of your work in my heart, cleansing my heart, giving you new hope, will be that I will be an effective instrument in helping other people find the path of forgiveness and coming to you and serving you. That, I, think that's, I think that really is one of the big secrets of effective ministry is to being in a good relationship with the Lord yourself. Uh, and, and that's not just true with me, but it's true with you as a parent. It's true with, with uh, you as a teacher or those that relate to those that work, if your life is walk, if you're walking in obedience to the Lord and seeking to serve him and being in a right relationship with him, then I think he can use us, I'm sure, 
he can use us in a much better way with others. He said, sinners will be converted, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. By the way, I, I, I can't help but say this. Uh, when we sing congregationally, uh, sometimes we are reluctant to sing. But I think that if our hearts are in right relationship with God, I think it will overflow in music. You understand what I'm saying? It, it makes a difference. If, if we are in wrong relationships, if we are living self-centered lives, not, not necessarily overflowing, the, the heart that is, in, that is confessed up to the Lord and obedient to him is a heart that is filled with song. And that's important. So he said, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth may declare, that my mouth may declare your righteousness. And he says, I do not, you do not delight in sacrifices. And that's why I say David, I think, had been offering all kinds of sacrifices and going through that process. You're not delighting in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. What are you looking for? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Sin is such a serious thing that comes into our lives. And it, it, we need to recognize that. We need to see that. And so we, we confront it in our lives. It needs to be dealt with. Finally, he says, by your favor, do good to Zion. That's the mountain of Zion in Jerusalem, but that's, that's the Jewish people, the Jewish people under grace. By your good, by your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. That makes the country, I'm still king. That means that Jerusalem is going to be strong. The fist is going to be strong. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So that so much depends on the national security and the effectiveness of the nation and the peace of the nation depends on the king's relationship with God and his confession of sin and being restored to God. Everything depends on that because God is in charge. God is holy. And if we're living in sin and we're living sinful lives and living self-centered lives, God can't bless. The word is one of the things that, that brings us to that point of confession. In the New Testament, I was looking for sermons. There's so many sermons that deal with confession of sin and confronting sin. I think of Stephen in Acts 7 when he was stoned. He was, he was preaching, a, if you will, a sermon to the Pharisees, and they couldn't stand it. They killed him. I'm thinking of Peter on the day of Pentecost when uh, they were saying, what shall we do? Peter was preaching a sermon to them, what was going on. And they were saying, what can we do? And he told them what to do to repent. And that's what they did. Jesus over and over and over again preached uh, sermons he did on Nazareth, and they tried to stone him at one time or tried to get rid of him, run him off a hill. Uh, over and over again, people, the, the preaching of God's people, the prophets confront sin, sin is dealt with, and uh, sometimes they don't like to hear it, sometimes they turn away, other times they repent, and it uses, the Lord uses it in their lives. So the first thing is rebuke, I mean, is the uh, reprove, and uh, the next one is rebuke, and I don't have time to get into that, but we'll look at it next time. I'm not trying to drag my feet, but it's really important that we see this. God's word confronts us in sin. Sin is what separates between us and God, and it's really, it's a serious thing. 
I know that we tend to laugh at it in the church. We tend to make light of it, but it's not something to make light of. Tonight, when we come back to have our communion, we will talk about this, and I will stand up here and lead us in a prayer of, of attempted prayer of confession, because that makes a difference in our fellowship with God, and it makes a difference in your fellowship with the Lord as your sin is confronted before the Lord. So let's, let me dispose in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to me and your goodness to us. We know that you're holy. That is the most fearful aspect of, I guess, of all of your traits, because while you're power, while you're powerful, um, you have laid your power out in gentle ways so that we can deal with it. You don't just bombard us with uh, all kinds of great power, but your holiness is what is fearful, because we are not holy. We are sinful. And we stand before a holy God, and you cannot tolerate our sin, and your word makes it clear. And so I thank you for the fact that you have devised a sacrificial system through your Son, through our Savior, our Lord, whereby we can come before you, and you will take our sin. If we repent, if we turn to you, that you will take our sin, you will lay it on your Son, and uh, that he has borne our sin in his own body on the tree. And we, will we who are wicked and sinful and self-centered will find mercy and grace from the God of the universe who is holy. Thank you for that. Thank you. Only you would devise such a gracious and merciful plan of reality. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for this time. And I pray for those that are here and those that are listening, I ask you to work in our hearts not so much to exalt me or the church or some kind of sermon, but that Jesus Christ would be exalted and lifted up and our lives would be touched by him and for his glory. I pray in his name of thanksgiving. Amen.